the American Battlefield Trust seeks to preserve our nation's hallowed battlegrounds and educate the public about what happened there and why it matters today. They permanently protect these battlefields for future generations as a lasting and tangible memorial to the brave soldiers who fought in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. You can help save battlefield land today by visiting battlefields.org. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattoo Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattoo Historian. And I'm really happy to say that I finally made it to the McCormick Civil War Institute at Shenandoah University down in Winchester, Virginia. Had a great time there, and it was great to finally meet the man in charge, the director of the facility, Dr. Jonathan Noyalis. Uh, We've been following each other for a while online, and uh, it was nice to finally sit down and talk with him about the Civil War Institute there at Shenandoah University, and to talk about a couple monographs that are going to be coming out. We actually talked about some augmented reality projects, which are uh, being utilized, and it was a really fascinating talk because we covered a lot of stuff in a short amount of time. I did uh, get an invitation to come down in April and see the conference which they're going to put on which is their annual conference i'm really excited for that there are still slots available for that conference and what's really cool about it is that it's going to be on civil war navies civil war on the water and that is really a subject which i don't know much about and i'm really looking forward to learning a lot at that uh, particular event in april now they try to cap it around 110 people and uh, I think uh, Professor Noyalis said they're around 90 right now. So you guys want to get involved with this. you got 20 slots, maybe 15 by now, and you better get on there and get signed up for it. It's a one-day conference. Uh, it's really affordable, and I'm really appreciative of seeing conferences like that that are very open and welcoming to a lot of different people of different demographics and talking about something we don't normally talk about especially in the American Civil War field. So again, it was great to sit down with uh, Jonathan Noyalis and talk about all these things, uh, monographs which are coming out, and it was just a a really great time. We sat down for a little over an hour together, uh, but we only recorded for about 35 minutes. So you guys are going to get a little taste of the McCormick Civil War Institute, what they do there. You get a little bit of uh, the director and what uh, Jonathan has, has done throughout the years. And uh, it's a really cool experience. I really enjoyed it, and I can't wait to get back to Winchester and visit. There's so much history around Winchester, Virginia, and so much of it I haven't seen. So I'm really looking forward to getting back. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here's my friend Dr. Jonathan Noyalis of the McCormick Civil War Institute talking with me about various subjects that the Institute is involved with, including their annual conference in April.
What's up, everybody? Thank you again for tuning in to this episode of the Tattoo Historian Show. I am here in Winchester, Virginia with my friend Dr. Jonathan Noyalis, and we are sitting in the McCormick Center. And uh, it's really nice outside compared to where I was last week with uh, up in Ontario. I don't have snow here. But uh, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. Delighted to have you. It's awesome to be back mm-hmm. here. It's been 20 years since I've been on campus, and it has grown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shenandoah University, um, real, I did my undergraduate work here. And over the past you know, 15, 20 years, it's, it's more than doubled um, in size. Oh, yeah. I can mm-hmm. definitely tell it's gotten bigger. And, and uh, as I was saying while we were off air, I was here with some friends, and it was after dark. And uh, so I didn't realize the scope of how mm-hmm. big th- this university actually is. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many students are here? Do you know roughly? Yeah, so we probably have um, between undergrad and graduate students, um, probably close to fifty five hundred, six thousand okay. students. Okay, mm-hmm. that's that's very respectable mm-hmm. in this area. Mm-hmm. That's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. So you you started here as an undergrad, right? That's correct. When was that? It was in the late nineties. So I came here uh, in nineteen ninety seven. Um, did my undergraduate work um, studying under Dr. Brandon Beck, who was the the founder of the McCormick Civil War Institute was established in 1992, um, and then I went on to Virginia Tech for graduate work, mm-hmm. studying with Bud Robertson, who passed away oh, yeah. uh, recently, and, and uh, Jack Davis. Yeah, what was it like studying under Bud Robertson? Uh, it was it was kind of surreal. I remember the the first time you know him walking into a graduate seminar. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never met him up to that point. Uh, very a uh, very real kind of down to earth person, mm-hmm. uh, which is sometimes not always the case with, you know, big name historians who have accomplished so much in their lives, but it was a really um, transformative experience in, in my life. I, yeah, he, he, I met him once, and mm-hmm. it was when, after he came out with his Stonewall Jackson book, mm-hmm. the, the big epic of Jackson, and I met him once, and he signed the book for me, and he just seemed like just this chill kind of person yeah. who just goes with it, and yep. we'll talk to you about anything. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's mm-hmm. and, and he's a tremendous loss in the, mm-hmm. in the Civil War field, mm-hmm. and and uh, I'm sad that I, that was the only time I ever got to meet yeah. him, and I was still probably 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you came here as an undergrad, mm-hmm. and then where did you go after? Virginia Shinto, Tech. Virginia, Virginia Tech, Tech. Okay. And then you stayed there? Or uh, it was, was Virginia Tech, yes. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. So, okay, you're a tech guy. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. And uh, when did you come back? This this all kind of came full circle for yeah, you. Yeah, it did. So um, after Virginia Tech, I, I worked. At uh, Lord Fairfax Community College for 13 and a half years, um, mm-hmm. teaching history. Started a very small Civil War center down there. Okay. Um, and then ultimately what brought me to Shenandoah University was um, the acquisition of 195 acres of the Cool Spring Battlefield in Clark County. Mm-hmm. So back in 2013, uh, the Civil War Trust, which is now the American Battlefield Trust, they preserved that acreage. And the president of Shenandoah University, Dr. Tracy Fitzsimmons, approached the trust and said, we would like to be the, the caretakers of this mm-hmm. property. Um, the trust gave it to the university with the stipulation that the university do something and interpret it and use it as an outdoor classroom and have programs. And at the time, the university did not have a Civil War historian on staff. Mm-hmm. So when Brandon Beck retired in the early 2000s, um, the institute existed but really didn't do a whole lot. Um, and that kind of kick-started everything. So I, I came here in January of 14 as a visiting professor mm-hmm. with the idea that I would teach uh, a course in Civil War Studies and then do something for the sesquicentennial of Cool Spring, um, which I did. And then I, they brought me back for a few more semesters. And then ultimately in January 2017, 
they invited me to come here full time and take over the institute. How has the spread of the the institute changed since that interpretive model has come into play? Yeah, so it's, I mean, the Institute really in the past three years, I think, has undergone a, a dramatic transformation. So the original incarnation of the Institute was uh, a course in Civil War history. Uh, there was a program in October that customarily went to Gettysburg. And then there was a, a three or four day program every May that looked at, at some aspect of, of Civil War history, largely in, in Virginia. Uh, when I came here um, full time in January 2017, one of my first charges was to really ramp up interpretation at Cool Spring. You know, so we developed a, a walking tour brochure um, with the aid of my students, developed an exhibition in, cool, uh, in, the, in the lodge at Cool Spring, which kind of serves the function of a visitor center. But um, over the course of the past three years, uh, we've done a lot with augmented reality oh, that's at cool. cool Spring. So the university um, a few years ago created what we call the Center for Immersive Learning, so we do a lot with virtual reality and augmented reality. So last summer, we actually filmed uh, about 14 different scenes out at Cool Spring that followed seven Union soldiers, seven Confederate soldiers who fought at the battle. Mm -hmm. um, and these are little, like, minute-and-a-half, two-minute snippets, but based on diary accounts and letter accounts. And so in July of this year, in, visitors to Cool Spring will actually be able to go out there download as an app on their smartphone mm -hmm. and this is gps enabled so you'll walk uh, to a certain point on the battlefield and this augmented reality experience will come on so it's 360 degrees wow. so it kind of brings you into that moment we debuted kind of the the test version of three of these scenes last year mm -hmm. at our 155th anniversary commemoration but the full thing will be debuting um, July 18th, which is the 156th anniversary this year. So, you know, Cool Spring is this is this great outdoor classroom that we use to help our students learn how to how to do history. Um, we're the only Civil War Institute that I'm aware of that has its own Civil War battlefield. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, Gettysburg College has a great institute, and they're right there in Gettysburg. Um, they have a great relationship with the Park Service, mm -hmm. but they can't always do what they want on the Gettysburg battlefield as we can right. at Cool Spring. But, you know, in addition to everything that, that we're doing out there, the Institute also, uh, we published the only academic peer-reviewed journal at the university. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called the Journal of the Shenandoah Valley during the Civil War era. So we have three volumes that have come out. And it, it, it really gives an opportunity for scholars who present at conferences but don't necessarily have that outlet to publish a paper so we've had some, some really you know top-notch Civil War historians, um, Dr. Kenneth Coons from VMI, Barton Myers from Washington and Lee, Alan Gelzo, uh, who's now at Princeton University, formerly of Gettysburg College, uh, have published essays in each of, of the, the first three volumes. But we've also had an opportunity for um, some of our undergraduate students to get published in here, working on um, original research about Union debt at Cool Spring. Uh, we've had, you know, some newly uh, graduated students from Virginia Tech's master's program published in the journal. So it really, uh, you know, is kind of, from my perspective, filling a void because there's so much great scholarship out there on the Valley that doesn't have an outlet for publication necessarily. So we're giving that, but we're also giving an opportunity for undergrads 
uh, to get to get some real world experience and get published. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's so very important. And I hate to go backward in our conversation mm-hmm. for just a second, but how is that augmented reality? Uh, been seen by students or the public at large how has that come across to them yeah it's i was uh part of me was kind of nervous because it's sort of a of a new thing um but when we we debuted it uh last summer our students of course were really excited and we had a lot of students work on the project Mm -hmm. uh but i was blown away by the public reaction i mean there was not anyone who said um this is a terrible idea they said that it, it really brought cool spring to life for them in a way they did not get Mm. at another Mm. site. Mm. Um, You know, at cool spring, we don't have like an NPS site. We don't have, you know, paid staff who are there, you know, seven days a week. We, we largely run in the summer with a volunteer staff and a lot of self-guided interpretation. So being able to bring that level of specificity to a battlefield tour when there's not a boots on the ground person there, I think it's pretty uh, kind of a, a revolutionary thing. Mm-hmm. Jen Murray, who teaches at Oklahoma State, is a good friend of the Institute. Um, she was kind of blown away by the whole thing. And I remember her saying, you know, she's never seen anything like this before at any historic site she's ever visited. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think there is certainly a niche for augmented reality and virtual reality within historic interpretation. We actually uh, worked on a project for the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation, okay. which owns the Courthouse Museum in downtown Winchester, recreating um, John Brown's trial. Oh, cool. So we bas- yeah. it's basically down to an eight-minute virtual reality. It's kind of the, the final moments of the trial where Brown essentially puts the nation on trial for the, for the crime of slavery. But it's, it's a very powerful thing when you're, you know, you're in this thing immersed space 360 degrees and it's it's happening all around you yeah that's really cool and Mm -hmm. and it's it's really interesting that you brought the point too about since it's an area that's not staffed Mm -hmm. it's kind of like that could be an interpretive model for other places that are understaffed Mm -hmm. it's like well maybe this could be uh an option right for someone like that Mm -hmm. i never thought of it that way yeah absolutely where that's your that's your battlefield guide Mm -hmm. is that augmented reality Mm -hmm. virtual reality Mm -hmm. which is a pretty cool thing yeah and with the with the journal, you said that a lot of undergrads get their you know their mm-hmm. chance to get published mm-hmm. in there. How has the outpouring from that been for the students? Have they really been excited to get in there and get involved? And oh yeah, yeah. I've I've some students I have to kind of beat off with a stick and and tell them, <laughs> you know, that there's still a process that we go through. We have a, a board of of uh, fifteen historians who are on an ed- editorial board, um, and again, these are some some top notch scholars, Jim Brumall. From Shepherd University is on there. Alan Gelzo, Ken No, um, Jonathan Berkey, Dennis Fry. So there's a lot of um, really top-notch scholars, and you know, I tell my students, I'm like, because they come to me with ideas, mm-hmm. and I'm, some of them, I'm like, you know, I, I shy them away from those ideas because that's been done before. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, my students are really excited about just having this opportunity to really do, you know, real good primary research and breaking new ground. Mm-hmm. Do you see a, a shift uh, generation, generationally? That's hard for me to say mm-hmm. right now. With with some of the students, where they're they're going a different direction than we did twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, or is it pretty much you know we're we're going on a standard course because of training and, and teaching? Yeah, I think a lot of my students are much more, and this is probably a product of of my own 
training, um, where students are really interested in drilling down almost in a, in a micro-history way to, to look at the stories of individual soldiers mm-hmm. and what can looking at those individual stories reveal about broader themes in the Civil War. And that's really one of the things that, I mean, Bud Robertson, going back to my grad school days, you know, that was kind of his, his bread and butter. That's what he stressed all the time is that, you know, if you can, if you can tell the, the story of the conflict through individual stories, you have a greater ability to connect people than if you're talking about things in a, in a very broad, in a broad perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's, I've seen that in the interpretive model too, right. where, where you see a lot of especially uh, park rangers and mm-hmm. and your small museum st- docents going out and making it more personal. Right. Uh, the behind-the-scenes tours and stuff like mm-hmm. that is just mm-hmm. taking off. Mm-hmm. And I can definitely see that shift along with mm-hmm. you in that, mm-hmm. in that way. And, mm-hmm. and uh, academia is starting to really embrace that oh, yeah. hardcore, yeah. which is awesome. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you go to a, a battlefield, I mean, obviously, you know, the tactical movements and the strategic situation that's always going to be part of it. Mm-hmm. But as I, you know, I'm teaching a course this semester interpreting civil war sites. So we talk a lot about how you approach um, interpreting a battlefield. And, you know, my general experience has always been, if you start to drill down a little bit too much into some of those tactical discussions, people gloss, you know, they, they start getting glossy eyed and can't really process. So if you, always find a way to kind of bring it back and allow people to make that personal connection. I think it's, it's much more effective and it gets the, the point across. Oh yeah. And, and sometimes I've often said I've never moved a core, but I've been hungry. Right. And, and That's I, exactly right. And you know, yeah. it's, it's really neat to see other mm-hmm. people connecting mm-hmm. with that way in different places mm-hmm. because it is a universal yep. story. Right. Yep. Uh, but that, that's awesome. And, and thank you for giving me some copies yeah, of the yeah, journal. Absolutely. That's the, the perks of mm-hmm. driving down today. <laughs> I get I get my copies of the journal. But there is a monograph that we need to talk about. There's a new, right. the new book that you would like to, to touch on and let everyone out there know about mm-hmm. it because it's a very important book in, in the history of this area. Yeah, so there's actually there's, there's two there's two books I want to talk about. So the first one uh, will be one that's going to debut April the 4th which is our annual spring conference this year that's going to focus on the Civil War on the Water, uh, featuring myself, John Kosky, um, Anna Gibson-Holloway, Karen Needles, and Jonathan White. And um, it's a collection of 29 letters written by Corporal Robert Bradbury, who served in Battery D, 1st Pennsylvania Light Artillery, which that unit spent a lot of time um, in the Shenandoah Valley during the Civil War. So this is a collection of letters that came to the Institute um, last spring, and the individual, Harriet Johnson, who donated them, is descended from Robert Bradbury. Um, apparently, she heard me speak like five years ago at a Cedar Creek commemoration event. And um, she ultimately decided that she wanted to donate these letters to me and to the Institute because she felt that we would do something with them. And you know full well that oftentimes um, people have these great letter collections, they get donated and they get tucked away in archives, and they're forgotten. So, you know, I vowed to her, basically, that if if the content was good, and it's really good content, um, not just in terms of battles, but in terms of personalities, politics, um, you know, what he thinks about Jeff Davis's capture, what he thinks about Lincoln's assassination. Mm -hmm. So we edited those letters, um, and this will be the very first book that was ever published by the Institute. Uh, So that'll be out April 4th. And then the other book which is it's much bigger than this 
um, and this is probably the one that, that you're referencing, um, is under contract with the, with the University Press of Florida. Okay. And it's entitled uh, To Be Free Someday, um, Slavery and Freedom in the Shenandoah Valley During the Civil War Era. Mm-hmm. Um, and the African-American experience in the Shenandoah Valley has been, for all intents and purposes, absent. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been some scholars, Ed Ayers, you know, uh, great books, in the presence of mine enemies and thin light of freedom have addressed elements of the African-American story, but that's in Augusta County. Mm-hmm. Um, my book will look at the African-American experience throughout the entire Shenandoah Valley. And I think what becomes very clear is that the African-American experience in this part of the valley, where we're at the lower valley or the northern valley, mm-hmm. is very different than the experiences that African-Americans have in Augusta County. Um, Augusta County really is, uh, they don't experience the war like Winchester, Frederick County, Berkeley County, West Virginia do. It's, it's constant here. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't really touch in that kind of dramatic way, Augusta County until 1864. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a book that covers everything from, um, you know, discussions of how slavery has been kind of written out by some early chroniclers like Joseph Waddell of Augusta County who mm-hmm. um, had enslaved individuals prior to and during the conflict, um, John Wayland, um, Julia Davis in the 1940s, and how there have been a handful of historians you know, doing little bits and pieces of this, mm-hmm. but really looking at it all the way through from you know, John Brown's raid through the conflict, um, and of course you know, the, the first five years after the conflict uh, when the Freedmen's Bureau has a major presence in Virginia and the Shenandoah Valley. Mm. Do you think it was written out a narrative just as a whitewashing of the entire process? Yeah, I, I think, you know, when you look at, at the at the Lost Cause mm-hmm. mythology, um, it, it's pretty typical to talk about, you know, docile, contended, um, enslaved people, right. you know, the happy the happy Negro myth, in essence. And so, yeah, it, it was it was certainly... On purpose, and I mean Joseph Waddell is is really the first chronicler who who comes out and, and makes a claim. You know, not only were individuals who were enslaved here were they happy, but that slavery really wasn't an important part of the valley's economy. Which you know, if you look at, or there weren't a lot of enslaved people in the valley. Well, you know, by the time the war broke out, about a quarter of the valley's population were enslaved. You know, and as I write in the book. Um, you know, this is not Tidewater, Virginia. This is not the South Carolina Low Country, mm-hmm. where you have a majority, um, a, a major majority, um, who are enslaved. But nonetheless, you have um, enslaved people who are being rented, brought in from other areas outside of the Shenandoah Valley. Um, so, yeah, I think that it will be, for some people, eye opening and shocking mm-hmm. at the same time. And quite frankly, it might make some individuals uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But as I tell my students all the time, History isn't supposed to make you feel comfortable all the time. It's supposed to drill down and get at, at, a, at a greater, deeper truth. Mm-hmm. You brought up an interesting point, which was uh, a fact that a lot of people don't get it, that you could rent slaves. Right. And they think, well, if my ancestor couldn't buy one, mm-hmm. they, they weren't touched by the institution. Well, right. they could rent oh, yeah. slaves. And that was a big business. It was. And it was, it was an, a, an enormous business in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, Looking at slave rentals is always difficult um, because these are just personal exchanges from, you know, the renter and the enslaver. 
but still with with what exists i mean there are, are times in the year planting season harvesting time in particular where a lot of individuals in the Shenandoah Valley are are relying on hired laborers, rented labor, um, to get the work done. And there's actually some individuals in the valley who had owned slaves, sold those slaves because they realized it was financially beneficial to them to just simply rent, you know, enslaved people for a few months out of the year. But but again, I think it's pretty clear that with the agricultural-based economy in the Valley, slavery was an important part of that economy. And again, it's also true that, um, you know, a lot of of enslavers worked alongside with those enslaved laborers, but the reality is they're still enslaved and they're here laboring. They're an important part, and they have a a really um, important part in the conflict, not only, and this is one of the one of the many points that the book makes, um, it not only looks at how African Americans tried to secure their freedom, how freedom was taken away from them, but the the roles that they played in bringing down the Confederate war effort, um, either as laborers for the Union, um, working in espionage, um, running away and enlisting in the United States Color Troop regiments. I mean, we've identified um, well over 700 individuals from the Shenandoah Valley who ended up serving in USCT regiments during wow. the conflict. Wow. I, I had read somewhere when I was going through grad school about the fact that in some cases slavery was on decline in some areas because they realized they could sell them to Mississippi, mm-hmm. Alabama, and all that because mm-hmm. of agricultural reasons and higher prices mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Do you see a decline like that in, in the Valley area, or is it more— because this is such a contested zone, mm-hmm. it's easier to get to the federal line. It's easier to yeah. find their freedom. So Shenandoah Valley, you know, looking at from the the moment of the first slaves mm-hmm. arriving here in colonial times, there was always this steady uptick. Um, there were times when slavery declined um, based on census records, and that's in the 1830s, mm-hmm. and then between 1850 and 1860. I don't think it's coincidental that decline happens after Nat Turner's revolt um, in 1831, and then, of course, following John Brown's raid Mm. in 1859. But yeah, there were, um, you know, when the war broke out, there are individuals who who either sent their enslaved people to family members in other parts of Virginia where they'd be more insulated mm-hmm. um, or sold them all together to, because they wanted to protect, they wanted to get something out of their um, investment. And one of the things that um, I was able to, to tease out of, of the research that had not been used by anyone before, you know, is, is the frequency of individuals fleeing and doing so successfully. And if you look particularly at, you know, late 1861, early 1862. So this is, you know, right after the first Confiscation Act goes into effect, and there's a change of command in the Valley mm-hmm. from Robert Patterson, who was enforcing the old policy of not doing anything to help enslaved people run away, to General Nathaniel P. Banks, who was headquartered at Harper's Ferry, who was a bit more um, abolitionist-minded than Patterson was, mm-hmm. and doing things he could to kind of break... Uh, the slave system in the valley. And you have, there was a, uh, tucked away in the uh, Library of Congress in General Banks's papers were these oral history interviews, in essence, where 
African Americans who fled to General Banks's lines were were being interviewed by provost officials, and they were giving names and who their enslavers were, and why they left. And it, it paints a very graphic picture of what slavery was like in the Shenandoah Valley. Hmm. And these individuals are are not only talking about that; they're also providing military intelligence to General Banks about you know, Confederate troop strengths and like, and the fortifications that were being built around Winchester. But on any given day, and again, proximity to Harper's Ferry determined, you know, how likely you were to flee. So, you know, about 60% of the individuals who went to Harper's Ferry either were enslaved in Jefferson County, Berkeley County, or Frederick County, mm-hmm. um, much closer. Mm-hmm. But you have on any given day, you know, 50 to 100 enslaved people in late 61, early 1862, going to Harper's Ferry, or as General Banks starts moving to Winchester in early March, you know, going to his lines, seeking refuge with him. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's mm-hmm. a lot of that's a lot of movement. Oh yeah, people, fifty to a hundred a oh, day. Yeah. yeah, that's a huge amount. Yeah, and some um, there are newspaper accounts from like Harrison, uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania newspapers um, talking about on average a hundred people a day from the Shenandoah Valley. Hmm. Are arriving in Harrisburg, you know, seeking refuge, trying to find, trying to find a way to get to Canada, wow, to that land of promise. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to Canada. That's no. right. <laughs> <laughs> Much different aspect, but uh, but yet I'm really looking forward to it because mm-hmm. these narratives. Uh, when I started doing historical interpretation back in the 1990s, that lost cause thing mm-hmm. was still a very strong right. thing, and I know it's still very strong mm-hmm. in many parts of the country, especially when you get further south Mm -hmm. there's still those lost cause narratives because i think it's a way for some people to Mm -hmm. uh deal with the past Mm -hmm. you know i'm some of my family's german you can imagine Mm -hmm. how they have to try to deal with Mm -hmm. the past and it's it's one of those things where it's it's a a really interesting subject to to cover and Mm -hmm. to uh to cross Mm -hmm. you know as an american Mm -hmm. and think about that because you know it's it's a so overwhelming uh, mm-hmm. when you think of the scope of oh, it yeah. and how often it was just overshadowed by mm-hmm. louder voices in mm-hmm. the room, mm-hmm. so to speak, in mm-hmm. that way, and people who could get published yep. more than others. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad to see it's going to come out and, oh, yeah. and make a difference in this part of the world. Yeah, and, and too, as, as I wrote in the introduction to the book, um, a few years ago there was a, a, a slave cemetery that was uncovered just east of Middletown, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I was asked to, to come there, look at it, and see what we could do, the Institute and my students could do to kind of help document this cemetery. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went in, did a, did a mapping project. And it's, it's interesting, as I was standing there, this was a, a cemetery that basically had been grown over, tucked away in the woods. And I thought, what a metaphor this is mm-hmm. for how African-American history has not been told. Um, in the Shenandoah Valley. And, you know, I, I think people need to understand as as a historian, um, if you're going to really have a complete understanding of the conflict, uh, you, you cannot exclude the African-American story. Right. Um, just as you can't exclude the story of, of, of white civilians. So I'm hopeful that, that when this book comes out, when that exactly will be, I'm not quite certain. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe by the end of the year, maybe early next year. Um, but I'm hopeful that it will open people's eyes and help advance this discussion and maybe open up some more avenues for 
broader public interpretation, signage and those types of things to mm-hmm. make people aware. Um, you know, I've, I've given some variations of, of talks from aspects of the book at not only professional conferences, but, but you know, roundtables and other public venues. Mm-hmm. And people are just amazed when I talk, for example, about USCTs from, from Winchester. I mean, they had oh, no really? idea. And I'm like, there's graves in the National Cemetery and Oryx Cemetery. Um, and these guys have very, you know, compelling stories. Um, I did a, a Facebook Live event with Dana Schof at Civil War Times mm-hmm. um, back in January. And one of the things that we talked about in the National Cemetery were the, the, the three African-American USCT veterans buried in there. And it was interesting to look at some of the comments from people saying, we had no idea. You know, thanks for doing this. So hopefully that there's not, hopefully there's that excitement mm-hmm. when that when that book comes out. I hope so. I'm mm-hmm. I'm sure I'll be excited. Yeah. And I know a lot of people who who listen uh, to the podcast and who follow online mm-hmm. really uh, enjoy those types of posts where mm-hmm. you're uncovering something mm-hmm. new, and especially with the African American experience, mm-hmm. uh, that's that's so very vital uh, to the overall story of not only that era but our right. history overall, mm-hmm. um, and that leads me to the the conference mm-hmm. because uh i'm i'm really looking forward to the conference mm-hmm. because i've never been to a conference which has been strictly the civil war on the water mm-hmm. and uh you know i'm a i'm a land guy yeah <laughs> so this is gonna be a really interesting conference can you tell everyone a little bit about that yeah too? sure so um one of the things that that i always like to do is to have a conference that that offers something a little bit different and unique maybe looks at the war from a, a different angle and so the conference that we had in 2019 basically looked at um, the way that people resisted. So, you know, we looked at unionists and, and all this kind of stuff. And as the conference was going on, I'm always, you know, once my presentation is done, I'm thinking about the next year. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I, I can't remember um, in my lifetime a conference, at least in this part of the country, that focused on the war on the water. Mm-hmm. And um, so I thought this is going to be our theme. And one of the things, interestingly, that that I always like to do is to, you know, I bring in, in you know, some some top notch historians, but try to really make my presentation connect to the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're talking about the Civil War in the water, that's a little bit more difficult because there's <laughs> yeah. no like, you know, monitors flowing down the Peckin Creek. Right. But, you know, the Shenandoah Valley in Winchester in particular has a very important connection to the Trent Affair. Okay. Um, Senator James Mason was from Winchester. Oh, wow. So that's going to be the focus of, of my presentation is, is the Trent Affair and um, issues of, you know, neutrality on the seas during the conflict. Mm-hmm. But we have, you know, some, some great uh, scholars coming in. Um, John Kosky from the American Civil War Museum in Richmond. Um, Jonathan White and Anna Gibson Holloway, who teamed up on that great book published by Kent State University Press, mm-hmm. um, Our Little Monitor. Um, are going to be talking about, you know, personalities, um, talking about um, ships. And we have Karen Needles coming from the Lincoln Digital um, Archives Project Mm -hmm. talking about aspects of of what she's been able to pull out uh, from those papers um, that deal with Lincoln and and Gideon Wells and and naval operations and those types of things. And it's really, you know, one of the, the things that the Institute always prides itself on is, is bringing top notch historians and doing so at an affordable price. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we charge a, a nominal $50 fee 
for the conference that covers lunch and, and all presentations. Wow. And then throughout the course of the conference, you know, we have um, author's books are there as well as other books related to the topic will be for sale. So Harpers Ferry National Historical Park um, Bookstore always teams up with us and comes down and handles that. But we'll have some other things that will be going on between the sessions. Um, so we'll have some of that augmented reality mm -hmm. experience we talked about earlier will be available for people to look at through iPads. Mm -hmm. um, we're actually going to bring out some of the Robert Bradbury artifacts and letters that were donated to us that comprise that book that will be on display as well. So there'll be a lot of, of things going on. And I always like to think of our conference as a, as a more intimate event where you do have an opportunity um, to interact with the historians um, and, you know, ask them questions that you couldn't ask during the sessions or, you know, get them to sign books or whatever the case might be. And that, that intimate area of, you know, of operations, basically, how, what is the size usually of this conference? So the past several years, um, you know, we're, we're around 100 to 110 people. Um, I usually cap it at 110. Mm -hmm. uh, we have 90 people. Uh, who are already currently signed up. So if, if we go to the max, you know, we have about 20 slots that are left. Mm -hmm. um, we are tracking well ahead, well ahead of where we were at this time last year. So last year we had maybe 50 people signed up, so we're almost double wow. of that, which is good. You know, I like to see that that level of interest right. uh, from people. But there's a, there's a, a fine line that I want to make sure that all the individuals who come and are regulars, mm -hmm. you know, that we don't get too big and lose that that degree of intimacy right so if anyone's listening you only have <laughs> 20 slots available. that's right yeah and and i'm gonna have this up here at the end of the week so i only have 15 right by the <laughs> time this goes up where can people go online to register yeah. so that? online it's really simple um www.su.edu backslash mcwi um and that has information about the conference the the schedule um, and also on that website, I'll just mention, you know, we have some other things on there um, that we do throughout the course of the year. Um, you can you can download the Cool Spring Battlefield Guide uh, from there and learn a little bit more about some of the other types of programs that we're doing. Mm. What's an before we go? What's an aspect of Cool Spring Battlefield people should really realize? Um, to me, there's there's one, and I get this all the time from individuals who come out there. Um, and who don't know anything about the battle. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, well, you know, this battle wasn't as big as Gettysburg. And, well, that states the obvious, <laughs> right? There's not yeah. 180,000 guys and 55,000 casualties. Um, cool Spring is the largest battle fought in Clark County, 13,000 total troops engaged, and about 1,000 casualties, federal and Confederate combined. Um, but one of the things that I always hammer home to people when they come out to Cool Spring, and when they go on a tour, if they take nothing else away... Um, it is this, that it's very cold and callous and wrong to judge a battle based on its statistics, mm -hmm. how many troops engaged, how many casualties. Mm -hmm. um, to a soldier who was wounded at that battle, that's the most important battle of that soldier's life. Mm -hmm. um, right. To family members who lose a loved one at that battle, that is the most important battle of the war for them. Um, and I always tell individuals about the story of Colonel James Washburn who was the commander of the 116th Ohio. Uh, Colonel Washburn was shot through the right eye at the Battle of Cool Spring. The bullet exited out behind his left ear. And the men of the 116th Ohio, they thought, obviously, that Colonel Washburn was a goner. Mm -hmm. Miraculously, he survived. I mean, the bullet took just a path, a very lucky path, 
Um, he ended up coming back to the regiment um, just shortly after the Battle of Cedar Creek. But I tell individuals, because we have a, a, a post-war photograph that came down to us, a copy of it from Colonel Washburn's descendants. And it shows that damaged eye. Mm-hmm. And, and there are accounts that we have about the pain that he endured for the rest of his life. And I say, you know, I show this photograph, and I'm like, you know, if you think that this battle's not important because it's not on the same grand scale as Gettysburg, think about Colonel Washburn. Because there's not a doubt in my mind that he woke up every morning, looked in the mirror, and he looked at his disfigured face, and he thought and he felt that pain that his mind did not revert back to July 18th, 1864, mm-hmm. when he was shot and, and his life forever altered mm-hmm. by this. Wow. That's a very powerful yeah. thing to take away from oh, yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for having me at the McCormick Center. Yeah. My first time here. Well, we're glad that you can come back anytime. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Yeah. And and I'm really glad we got to plug the books and mm-hmm. we got to plug the uh, the uh, the conference. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm very appreciative of the fact that I'll be here for the conference mm-hmm. and and hanging out with some cool people to talk about what mm-hmm. life was like on the water yeah. during the Civil War. And I'm I'm just really happy to have had the time to come down and, and speak well, with you today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And uh, again, everyone, that's uh, Dr. Jonathan Noyalis here at the McCormick's uh, Civil War Institute. And I I really want you to think about coming down to the conference because, like you said, there's probably only 20 spots available, maybe 15 by the time this goes up. Please consider coming down to uh, Winchester, or as I say, coming down. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm a Yankee. I'm sorry. So uh, am I. Yeah. So. Or, or coming up to Winchester, whichever direction you're 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 going, uh, but because it's a it's a great spot, full of Civil War history around here, a lot of Civil War history going on, and uh, there's just a lot of great places around here to visit. So please consider going on, logging on, and signing up, and I will speak to you next week. Mm-hmm.